All right. All right, first name James. Just starting it off. Not letting me prep here. <laughs> All right, I guess we're starting. Welcome to this, the Red Bull Podcast. Risk made me do it. I'm your host, Andreas Georges. We're talking to top performers in the world of adventure, sports, culture, tech, innovation. Uh, this week's guest is Arlen Hamilton. She's an entrepreneur. She's actually a venture capitalist. Previous to that, she was a uh, tour manager in the music business, and she made quite the pivot to get to where she was and had to endure a pretty long, arduous journey to get there, which we get into today. So, you know, the purpose of this podcast is to try and uh, understand the hurdles people had to overcome and, and um, the risks that they took. And the hope is that you guys out there, as you're listening to it, under- recalibrate kind of your understanding of what risk is. Um, I can't think of a better person than, than Arlen Hamilton, really, for uh, to, to relate this kind of story. I mean, this is a woman who, who came from not a lot in, in Houston, Texas, and had a dream of working in music, uh, managed to, to nail that career, and then got interested in, in Silicon Valley and the tech industry and really had no background, no understanding. So she really uh, she, she threw herself into trying to understand it. Um, and and really believe that there was room for a venture capital fund out there that invest, invested in in minorities, uh, in uh, startups uh, led by women, by members of the LGBT community, and um, saw an opportunity that that nobody else was hitting. And so, um, it's it's really with great pleasure that that I welcome her on the podcast because you know um, the story of Silicon Valley thus far. Um, has really been that of, you know, a, a very tight-knit community of, of typically white men, um, you know, making decisions, making big money decisions. Um, she's really tried to open the door and bust it open. And she did that while um, spending a period of time homeless um, before she was able to to start her fund um, or as she was trying to start her fund, as she was pitching people in the Valley. Um, it's a really, really powerful story and uh, really enjoyed speaking to her. And uh, I hope you guys enjoy it as well and and I'll see you on the other side you didn't start in tech no I'm not (laughs) I've uh, I've had a lot of different jobs I started working when I was 15 what was that job? Um, I was I worked at a pizza place I was uh, started as a cashier there it was just the owner uh, his wife me and one guy from my high school who was the driver and the dude from the high school <laughs> he was just, he he would like in between t- uh deliveries he would just tell me these horrible things he was doing in life like he had stolen from his last job and he would just tell me these things and i didn't know it at the time but it was my first uh introduction to privilege like in my face because he made more money than i did and i worked harder Right. And I, I started noticing that at that job at 15, that I was physically and mentally working harder than he was, but that he was already sort of a few steps ahead of me. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I worked there and then I worked my... Did you feel, I mean, did, was that a disillusioning moment for you? Oh, or was yeah. was it kind of like... It, it totally sucked. But at the same, I mean, I was totally mad at, I was mad yeah. at him. But at the same time, it, I turned it into a challenge for myself. So I know this may be hard to believe, but I actually started strategizing ways of how I can make him more efficient so he can make more money. And for me, that it was 
it may sound weird, but for me, that was like, okay, cool, that this is a good challenge. So I know that he does X amount of deliveries in this amount of time. If I can do this, this, and this at the store, maybe he can do more and the whole team wins and blah, blah, blah. Never got the credit for that. But I learned so much that I still use that today. So that's fine. You know, like I looked at that as how would I want to run this store right. if I if I own this store one day? And even though I was living in, in, a, in, situ- in a situation where you know, there was no money and, and it was hard, to, money was hard to come by. I always knew that one day I would have money. So it was like an inevitable uh, conclusion for me. What, were, what was your aspiration back then? I just wanted to run away with the circus, which I ended up doing. Yeah. I wanted to, I just wanted to be on the road. I wanted to work in uh, with live music in some way. And I ended up doing that. I ended up working as a production coordinator and tour manager for musicians and traveling the world. And is that an easy industry to get into? No, <laughs> not at it's all. Not. It's still not. It's yeah. still not an easy industry. And it also is actually quite um, – there, there is a dearth of women and people of color at the, the levels that I wanted to be at, which was arena-level tours as a, as a, a tour manager. And I know one black woman that is at that level. And so I saw that looking at, so everything that I've kind of tried to break into has been looking at, I don't see myself reflected there. There has to be something that can be done about that. And it usually starts with me talking about it and then doing something about it. What was the first uh, risk you took in terms of, I mean, was it, was it kind of running away with the circus as you put it? I mean, was, <laughs> uh, it, was it literally like, bye mom, bye dad, I'm on my way? No, um, you know, I, I would say that my mom, she raised us, me um, and my brother, and um, she has always been like, I, I like to say that, you know, some, some parents, hey, this is great. Some parents don't give you wings. Uh, <laughs> hey, look at that. Um, some people. Unintentional. Yeah. Unintentional yeah. They don't, they don't give you wings. My mom gave yeah. me a jetpack and just said, go. Just said, do you because, I'm, you know, I want you to do better than I did. I want you. I am reflected in you and any success you have, which I didn't see that all the time with other parents. Uh, but the risks I took were I was facing the choice of do I figure out a way to to eat or do I follow this other path and, and, and sacrifice now knowing that, knowing what I know, having that conviction of it's going to work out. It may take a few years. So this time period, you know, not getting the um, standard job or... Uh, I guess not the word settling, but... But it puts you on a certain path, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I did all kinds of things where I I put myself out there. That's another part of it. Like, to get the first arena-level job that I got in music, I sent 100 cold emails to production managers and tour managers that I'd find online, people that had worked with, like, the greatest artists, you know, and... To approach one of them is daunting, but I said I'm going to do a hundred because I want to look at this as a numbers game. And what was in that email? Oh, it was uh, I, I talked about myself just a little bit, and I said, you know, I've I've had a little experience with independent artists, and I've done all these things, and I have not worked in a prof- you know in a professional way, but I want to break into that, and I'd be willing to you know learn from you, apprentice, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm free. <laughs> I have the ability to, to move at a drop of a dime. And how about that? <laughs> and I got 20 responses and I got three in-person interviews and my first gig. I mean, those are that's a pretty good response rate, by the way. I think so, too. 
Yeah, I think yeah. so too. So there was something in yeah, in the and I, there. I, I, it wasn't a blanket message. It wasn't. Yeah. I, I guess I forget that part when I tell the story. It wasn't like I put a CC on a hundred people. Every person I wrote to individually, and gave them at least a sentence that let them know I was talking to them. Right. Directly. Right. Right. And you know, you knew their background. Yeah, and, I researched them. I mean, there's legwork that's done, right? I think maybe this day and age, we we feel like it's enough to just shoot off a mail or shoot off an instant message or whatever. Yeah. But do people forget legwork? <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. And it's, I mean, that goes across so many things like getting customers and, and, and looking for investors and all sorts of things. It can't be about quantity until you scale. So some people try to scale immediately, yeah. whatever they're doing. It can't be that it has to be about the quality of it. Even if you're reaching three people, but those three people come back over and over again to listen to your podcast or to buy what you're selling or to answer your question, that's really valuable in my opinion. And then that can be scaled. Right. How much was working in the music industry about getting to hang out with CeeLo Green? Negative uh, 5%. <laughs> okay. So what was it about the music? You just you just loved music or you loved the energy of those shows? Or I, what, what yeah, I love the energy of the shows. I'll tell you what happened. I was 13. And I, you know, again, didn't have much money growing up. Um, but I, Janet Jackson was my favorite human other than my mom on earth. Rhythm Nation. Uh-huh, exactly. I want to bust into the move right now, like bust into the dance. Yeah. It was around the Janet period, period, if you will. Uh, that 1993, like, amazingness that changed my life of an album. Um, and it, uh, we, she, she went on tour and I learned about the tour and I was just obsessed with Janet Jackson. She was just such she was just such this this image this like she was my Beyonce there we go she was my Beyonce at the time right so couldn't afford her ticket to the show so my mom pulled together enough money for one ticket that wasn't good but it was in the building <laughs> or at the amphitheater amphitheater and I went to it and she parked her car outside of this huge downtown venue the entire time because I was 13 years old and she didn't want me to you know she wanted to be near me she made me wear loop earrings so that or hoop if you want to call that um so that I would look older so people wouldn't mess with me you know because it's 13 years old and I sat down and I was all nervous and someone walked up to me and said well you're here so early you must be a big fan um you want to sit in the front row of the 17,000 seater I said yeah right whatever finally he said look I'll walk with you you hold on to your ticket. If I'm wrong, you can come back. So just walk with me. I walk up. They say, hey. They let me in. I'm in the front row of my very first concert of the person that I'm obsessed with. It turned out it was her husband at the time and that he does that, um, that he did that with, with people that got there early that he saw were big fans. And so that night during that show, not only did I see someone who was a black woman who was just mesmerizing and so talented. But I looked back on 17,000 people, every color, every gender, every orientation, every creed. You have Republicans and Democrats and all singing the exact same lyrics at the same time. And it was life-changing. It, it, it shifted molecules within me. And I said, whatever this is, <laughs> I, I, this, I'm addicted. Whatever this is, this is my drug of choice. And... So it all that's when I started daydreaming in school. I want to run away with the circus. I want to go on these tours. And so I started uh, finding ways to connect with people on tour. And now when I um, 
from the day that I got my first arena gig, I then make sure that I have at least two tickets available to me, that I go out to the nosebleed seats and give tickets away to young people that look like they're experiencing their first concert. Wow. <laughs> How much satisfaction does that give you? Oh, it's 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 wonderful. It's full it, circle. It never gets it never gets old, yeah. and it's uh, something that I hope to do for years. And it's just I know what that did for me. I haven't been able to tell her, but it it changed my life that that night. It started many different careers, not only my my touring career, but I started a music magazine because of it. And I believe I can be a venture capitalist as someone who was homeless three years ago because of the, of that night, I, I believe. This shift to tech, though, when and, and why did it happen? I was, um, like everyone else, sort of just seeing people invest and seeing these startups. And this would have been four or five years ago. Being around entertainment, you know, in, in, the, in the back, the backstage <laughs> area, uh, I noticed people, so you, you had people like Ashton Kutcher and Guy Siri and Ellen and Troy Carter and others. Uh, I think the Beebs was involved at one point um, in, in a few deals. Um, they were investing, and I was curious as to why these people who had what I considered really exciting lives were going to something corp- in a corporate kind of – that felt corporate to me. Yeah, because that was the perception, right? Yeah, yeah it was like yeah. these – what is that? What is that? Are you gambling? Are you trying to be like a CEO? Like, yeah, yeah, what yeah. do you, what do you do? Did you watch the social network and you just think it's cool and you're going to make a billion dollars? I didn't know. So I was curious. I'm going to get curious. Watch out. And I, I figured it out. I was like, oh, I started this career in music at, in production. I also published a, a print magazine, a music magazine for years. What was it called, by the way? Interlude. Oh, cool. We were in lots of the Hot Topic stores mm. during a time when um, they were phasing when, out. And when Hot Topic was a topic. It was a Hot Topic at the time. At the time, it w- this was hot stuff. This was like 10 years ago. Yeah. Well, it was a big when deal. When malls were around, basically. Yeah, Hot yeah. Topic was a topic only. Yeah. So I, was, I think it, it freaked me out. And it was so cool. Like when I found out that our magazine was in the Hawaii Hot Topic. I just thought that was so cool. So uh, I saw these uh, people... In the industry, I guess, I don't, um, investing, got curious, found out about it, realized, okay, when I started that magazine, when I got myself into music, into the music world, when I started my candy business in the third grade, all of these things, I was an entrepreneur. And I didn't know that. I didn't understand that 100%. Um, I used to call myself She Diddy. I used to have like a, a hoodie that said She Diddy. It's when- phenomenal. <laughs> Had it custom made. I really hope you like copyright trademark that. <laughs> okay, trademark TM. Trade, trademark, um, exactly. And so I always had that fe- that hustling kind of thing, always from day one. You know. And I mean, even in the music industry, you're always looking for the next. Yeah, thing. I and wasn't because that that's not like a linear path. In yeah, the industry, and really. I wasn't like in the music world. I wasn't like okay, I would like a job, so please give me a job. It was, I have a company that provides a service. I am one of the people that is providing. So it was like, how do I turn this into a company? It was all, it's always been the way that I look at things from, like I said, I had a candy business in the third grade, a full-fledged candy wholesale, uh, retail business uh, in the third grade. Did and you rip off 12-year-olds? I didn't rip them off at all. I, I undercut 7-Eleven uh-huh. and gave them a better price because I bought it wholesale at Costco. So it was, it was almost like altruistic. 
Yeah, well, from, I mean, we yeah. can even draw the roots of backstage capital back <laughs> to the third grade candy business where you're trying to. Yeah, I was. Beat the big I was trying to level the playing field then, and I am today mm-hmm. because I don't look at backstage capital as um, charity or even. We do support them, but I would say it's an honor to be able to invest in them because there are companies in our portfolio that are going to make me a millionaire. And um, to say that I'm somehow um, doing them a favor, I think, is inaccurate. Sure, yeah. So you're an entrepreneur, right? And you you recognize this. And you see tech as something that that is obviously at this point 2012 is that what we're talking about 2013 yeah, exactly uh it's really you know it's a viable industry i mean facebook's there mm-hmm. google's there youtube the might of the industry has already yes. shown itself how much do you know about it though very little uh but then wonderful thing the internet <laughs> i discovered the no uh internet books um i watched uh, i don't know how to calculate how much video i watched but it was probably if not thousands of hundreds of hours of video, it was a, I spent like two or three solid years just watching all the video I could, reading everything I could. It was it was like I was self it was self school, and so I listened, I watched, I read, as if I were in law school. It was to me it was my MBA, which is not law school for anybody who thinks I think that's right. That that's is. the only problem with that metaphor. That it doesn't quite, <laughs> I was like, yeah point made. yeah 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 point made. <laughs> Point. Uh, point taken and made. Sort of point made. made and taken exactly. <laughs> um, but you wanted to be a VC, which is which is weird, right? Thank you. Didn't you. Wa- Thank you, you didn't you very wa- much. You didn't want to. You didn't want to become. You know. You didn't want to start an app or you know uh, start a company that that provides a certain service or become an engineer or any of that stuff. Why venture capital? Why did you want to do that? I knew that I wouldn't excel as an engineer type because yeah. I can. My clock, uh, the clock on my stove at home is still blinking 12. I'm just really bad at like things that are tactile and that, yeah, my brother is amazing at that. He'd be an amazing engineer. So it was now a decision between starting a company as a CEO, co-founder, or investing in companies. And I thought about both of them for a while and I knew that I could do both. I knew that starting a company would be easier. I knew that with everything I had learned about investing, I could probably raise pretty easily, uh, relatively. And I knew that it would probably be a fun experience that was our customers, our our users, uh, that would be fulfilling. But then I compared that to having that one lane, that one project for the next seven to 10 years to what if we could invest in 100 companies that are led by women, people of color, and LGBT in the next five years? And what sort of impact would that have on the ecosystem? What sort of, what would that represent? Why is that so important to you? The same reason that seeing Janet Jackson at 13 was important for a little black girl in Dallas who didn't know that that someone that looked like her, well, (laughs) I could hope, that someone that looked like her existed was the boss she was in charge of everything in her life uh and her career that representation is everything so there's two major parts to it capital 100 percent. there needs to be more capital that goes to the innovators that are as i described who are underrepresented and therefore underestimated capital bottom line we can write about it we can talk about it all day but if checks aren't being written those people are not enabled to go out and, and try Go out and fail, go out and try again, and go out and succeed. It's just very basic. There's less than 10% of capital goes to those groups as a whole in general. That's ridiculous, right? Second part of that is representation. 
So I have nieces and nephews. And right now, they love uh, Rihanna and Selena Gomez and sports people, sportsing. I don't know these names, sportsers, mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they love them. That's great. They want, they aspire to be like them. That is wonderful. I also think that there should be the option of them aspiring to be the CEO of a company that employs 10,000 people, the uh, person who discovers a cure for something, the person who uses technology to unlock uh, financial potential for untapped regions. I, I want them to have that possibility in their minds. And the way you do that is by letting them see themselves. So I want to be the enabler that enables the innovators who will then go on to succeed representing and inspiring generations. I mean, how big a mountain do you have to climb to get in? I mean, that is, that is you're not just coming in trying to become a venture capitalist, taking a risk and doing that. You're coming in trying to be a venture capitalist for a historically ignored, you know, yes. some would say criminally ignored yes. uh, section of the population. What has what was the most difficult aspect of that? Here we go again with Silicon Valley term, but <laughs> that pivot for you. What was what was the hardest thing for you? Pivoting from 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 just you know building a successful career in music mm-hmm. to going down a path that is anything but certain and where the outcome is not nearly as where the outcome isn't even visible yet because it doesn't exist yeah i you know i started off by trying to tell people this is how we should do it like this is my idea whose people well i wrote a blog post in 2015 uh, in the summer called dear white venture capitalists if you're reading this it's almost too late and I laid it out very in like a in a nice way. I thought it was like um, not accusatory and not you're stupid and not you know because I don't think that really works. But it was more like, hey, we can work together and we can all make some money here and change lives. And I think this is cool. And you guys have the the purse strings right now, so you can make more money than you're already making, and we can make you know t- the tech world reflect the real world. And so I wrote that. It went viral. It got a lot of attention for that. And you know. I still hear the um, the ripple effects of that when people come up to me. But I didn't see a lot of action from the people I was talking to, meaning the venture capitalists who can write checks. I didn't see a lot. And you're not going to see anything immediate anyway. So I said, well, I can talk about it. I can blog all day. I mean, I can, I can talk. If I were in the room by myself, I could be talking for two hours. Kind of scary, but I could do that. Or I could... Tell people what to do while I'm doing the same thing and let them know, like, I see all sorts of deals. I see deals across the board. I mean, I've had access to, like, unicorn deals um, that are later stage. So if I wanted to just be rich, you know, fast rich, I could just try to raise this fund, this other fund, multi-million dollar fund, put money into those tried and true companies, and boom, and then I'm rich. And then maybe I can become, like, an angel investor or philanthropic person. But I believe that the longer, more sustainable and larger riches will come from what I'm investing in today, because I believe in this so much. So I think I'll be more successful over a longer period of time. And I'll think that I'll move needles, like kick them, knock them off their axis and change lives rather than my own life. Because that's 
How that's not that's kind of boring to change. Do you think that's what's missing at the moment too from from you know Silicon Valley, Silicon Alley, Silicon Beach, whatever? Mm-hmm. <laughs> All these various like tech centers is that kind of altruism is the wrong word, but is that need and that urgency to bridge the digital divide? Yeah, I think there are a lot of people that are working on it and and on both on all sides yeah. want to um not to quote anyone um <laughs> want to do these big moonshot ideas. I think they have that in mind. And I think that, you know, we shouldn't take away from that. or I shouldn't take away from that. But I do think there's a lot of room for improvement. You know, people do look at, they do look at Facebook or Twitter or whatever, Snap, and they say, okay, I can just, with my buddies, I can start a company. We'll get a million dollars to work on it for a year. If it doesn't work, we go to the next thing. If it does work, we make more money or we raise more money and live off of that for years in our prime 20s most of the time. Uh, it's kind of attractive. I, I, I get it. Yeah. But I think that there are so many people with really great intentions that should have, um, should have that access to. So there should be – I'm not necessarily saying there should be less – of one type, I think there should be more of the other. I there think there should be more access to the people who do want to, to change things. So take me back to the nitty-gritty days when you were starting this thing. Mm-hmm. What did you pitch, and how did you do it concretely? I started by saying that I was Morgan Freeman's granddaughter, but that did not work. Um, <laughs> then I said I was a child actress who was grown up. and uh, I don't know why I went there. I'm I'm loopy right now. I have not had any food. Uh uh, there's a green apple. There's a green right apple. I know. No one's starving me here. <laughs> um, what I pitched was similar to what I was saying in the blog post, the Dear White Venture Capitalist blog post. Did you email people? Did you DM on Twitter? Did you? I did a mixture. Yeah. So I would see someone on a video, for instance, and I would say, oh, they're cool. Like Chris Saka. That dude's cool. I like the way he thinks. I like the fact that he's a rebel and he seems to do things his way. Let me get in touch with him. So I I can't remember exactly how I found his email. Oh, yeah, I, I asked someone that I knew that might have known him if they could do this, and it took a few weeks, and they made the introduction uh, through email. But that was like a lot of <laughs> dots to, to connect. And I, I wrote to him, and I said, you know, I'm in Houston, Texas, and I'm black, gay, female, and I've seen a lot of deals that I don't think you're seeing, and I'm trying to raise this small fund to get some skin in the game and da, da 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 and start my journey and would love your support. And I did that with as many people as possible. And some of them ignored me completely, never heard from them. Uh, some of them wrote me back and said, that sounds really cool. Why don't you do a nonprofit? And then others said, oh, I don't think that's going to work. So it's not really important. It's not that important right now. So it's not going to work. Um, Chris was like, keep me posted. Like, let me see what you're doing. Let me kind of keep an eye on it. I don't invest in other funds, but let me kind of see what you're doing. That was that journey. So that was a three-year journey. Uh, and he became an investor with his wife, Crystal, and um, has been very supportive since. And Brad Feld, I just cold emailed. Uh, Brad Feld is, sorry, uh, I I feel like I'm in Silicon Valley, so I can just say those things. You're anything, but. Yes. uh, Brad Feld, he wrote the book on venture capital, 
literally. Okay. He is a venture capitalist um, himself. He's been around for 25 years. So you hit him up. Very successful guy and very thoughtful guy and, and um, very like probably the most well-respected venture capitalist that I can think of. So I hit him up. He's very busy. He wrote me back within like an hour. We started talking. I did this video once for this other VC. His name is Charles, and he was at the VC fund that was the first institutional investor in Twitter. And I knew he was like looking for an apprentice, but it had already passed, and he was looking at all these guys. And so I made a 17-minute video on the floor of my apartment in Houston, and I told him why he needed, I need to be his apprentice. And it was just nothing, there was no bells and whistles. It was just a video, 17 minutes. I was trying to make it two, and it turned into 17. And so I just, I put it on Vimeo, and I said, okay, I'm going to send this to him, password protected. I look kind of crazy talking to him like this, like I know him. I'm going to send it to him. He probably won't ever see it. So I sent it to him. I found his email on the website. He wrote me back like 24 hours later, and he said, I watched it twice. And I don't know who you are, but I am keeping an eye on you because this is crazy, you know. What did so, you say in that video? Oh, um, I told I was, I was just being very sincere, and I told him that that he had no good reason to take a chance on me, but that I know what I can do with negative. I know what I can do in the negative, like what I'm capable of, and when I reach zero like watch out world and if he's part of helping me do that and giving me that chance then he would be part of I wanted to, for him to think of me as a startup that he caught early and when did you reach zero in this journey um I reached it um end of 2015 where, where were you I was in Los Angeles and so reaching zero for me was just meant I was out of debt crazy crazy debt that I had and I was not worried about where I was going to live and eat uh, and where, you know, that's zero to me. And I have, you know, it never, it's never gotten easy as in like fundraising, but that's business. So personally reaching zero was end of 2015 where I now for 35 years had only been negative, had always been either poor or broke. There's a difference or in debt as an adult or blah, blah, blah. Then I was like, okay, I've I've earned some capital here, and now I can do it. And then I I didn't. I think I had I I had a, a cupcake delivered, um, to me, like I'm some sort of fancy princess. Mm-hmm. And I think I took a day off and celebrated, and then I got back to work. And the the year preceding that, um, I mean, were you? Was it was it just? I mean, were you hanging out in Palo Alto? Or no? I, I, I'm trying to <laughs> imagine I mean, so much you could do. I, so the image that came to mind when you say hanging out in Palo Alto, I would take my luggage, which was one bag and a backpack, to the food court area of a local grocery store. And I did have a laptop. I was thankful to have that. I would get on their Wi-Fi. I would have nowhere to sleep that night. And I would have no way... To, I had no cash. So what I would do is I would have DoorDash deli- or delivery service, Postmates or whatever, deliver food to me in the courtyard. And I was standing, I was surrounded by food, but I didn't have the cash. So I would have d- that delivered to me and I would tell them I was an employee on my lunch break. And so that's how I would eat that one meal for the day. And then I'd work from it. And then I would pack my stuff 
And then I would get on the Caltrain in Silicon Valley, and I would take that train to the airport, which goes directly into SFO, and then I would sleep on the floor. So I guess you could say I was hanging out. Um, How long did you do that for? <laughs> a long time. Months? I didn't do uh, the airport for months, but I did it for weeks. And I did, I actually, in L.A., I uh, got to know a donut shop really well uh, because they're open all night. They were open all night. So there's a donut shop across from Kodak Center, Hollywood Highland. I would go to the to a hotel there. I would stay there till they literally kicked me out at like 2 a.m., you know, because it was comfortable and warm. At 2 a.m., I'd go to the donut shop. I'd stay there overnight. There was a lot of characters there. I would then, by around 6, there's another coffee shop that opened on uh, at Selma and uh, Coenga. I feel like I'm on that, that SNL skit. And just took the 101 down to the 5. Right, right. <laughs> the Californians. Yeah, the Californians. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I would hang there for a while. And you were leading this get a double banana. life, right? Online, you were like a no. startup kind no. of person. And... I wasn't leaving, leaving. I don't think I was leading a double life because I never said I was like, gunning and running. I never said, oh, I'm doing well. I just didn't want to, like when it came to our investors, when it came to our first investor, getting the first investor was probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to do, like figure out how to do from nothing that it's like jumping and touching a 20 foot ceiling with no running start. So doing that, I didn't want our, the people that I was talking to, to invest in me out of some sort of pity or to think that I wasn't ashamed at all. I wasn't ashamed because I'm the, the same reason I'm not ashamed to be getting older is the same reason I wasn't ashamed about being homeless. I'm here. I'm alive. I'm doing it. I'm surviving through it. So it wasn't like, oh, I can't tell anyone. It was, well, this is business and this is my thing and it'll, it's temporary. And I've, you know, frankly lived through a lot of this. I've, it's been years where I didn't have places to live. So I know what that is. I know what it's like to travel well and you know, go around the world and get paid. And I know how both look. And I know that this will work and I'll be okay. So there wasn't an adjustment period for you when you were homeless? Adjustment period? From from that life or from that knowledge. Like, so going from homeless to and not uh, being. I think I'm, I'm trying to think of it the other way around. Like um, when you're used to a certain lifestyle. I've never been Losing used to, that. Oh, I never lost anything. I, I, I used to do my homework in the dark because we couldn't pay the bills. I mean, I've never, I've never, when I say I've traveled well, it means because I had a gig and our artist paid for us to travel and I worked and I had that gig. But, you know, you make money for the week that you work and then that doesn't really stretch. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, you can get into it, but it's, there was, a, there was a lot. There was a lot there. So what's your relationship with risk then? Do you even see those things as risky? So that's a good question because people tell me all the time that I'm a risk taker and it doesn't feel like it to me. It feels like I'm just doing what's necessary and that I do recognize that the outcomes of things that I do seem to affect people in a really interesting way. People seem, you know, people come up to me and they're shaking or they're crying or they're, um, they're so thankful. They feel inspired. But I, when I'm doing the things, I say, okay, well, this is how, this is how we get across the bridge. So we might as well jump, right? <laughs> like, what else are we going to do? Uh, we could just stand here. Um, so I don't think I, if we're if we're getting on the on the couch here, I don't think that I recognize fully the risks that I take. Or you don't see it as, or or how about this? Mm-hmm. It's riskier for you not to take that risk. Oh, boom, boom. 
What's that? Frazier. Frazier's in the building. Frazier's in the building, right? <laughs> no Niles, just Frazier. <laughs> talk to me. Talk to me a little bit about that. That's interesting um, because you know you in this kind of like rarefied Sand Hill Road venture capital world that you know we read about or we watch yes. on HBO. Um, the rarefied air. The rarefied air. <laughs> Folks like you mm-hmm. aren't there. You know, they're not black represented. Folk. Black folk, gay Big folk. Big black gay folk like myself. Exactly. Yes. They're not there. So how um, how do you navigate that? Is it an issue? Is it- I belong there. I belong there. There's no street on this in this uh, country that I don't belong on, that I, don't, that I can't walk freely. It's a free country. And I belong on Sand Hill Road. And they can either accept that and embrace it or they cannot and they you know it doesn't bother me either way where were you when you got that first check i was at that same kind of food court area but in a different part over by the acai bowl place um (laughs) and i had my suitcase with me and it was i had been waiting for a yes um i already know i was waiting for an answer from this particular person and um did you always think it was going to be a yes no, or, not or at all. Are you at this point like absolutely not? Be, because I've heard no's. I've heard no. I had heard no's for years prior to like two years of this isn't going to work. No, no, no. This was. I was hoping it was a yes because I really wanted to work with this person, but it could have easily been a no, and it was a yes. And she told me, and that's Susan, and she was our first LP, our first limited partner investor, and um, I danced a little bit, did a little jive you know what was that check for can't say okay uh but, but it was this, it was a sig- court. yeah it was uh it was a enough to get me out of the food court for sure for sure i went over and uh i was like i'll have the um fake sushi please uh and a diet coke thank you very much <laughs> thank you very much and still no cash it. though <laughs> yeah <laughs> ate it uh <laughs> like an adult you seem like the kind of person who then uh, never, not only doesn't rest on her laurels, but doesn't think um, that anything is stable. No, yeah, there's a lot of chaos. And that, you know, if I weren't a venture capitalist or a tour manager, I would be doing something in psychology, I think. Even psychiatry, I don't know. You should do. A, you should really make your podcast about that. I, it's wonderful. <laughs> that let's do that. I find I get been... sued a lot. <laughs> yes, I had a very chaotic childhood with the best intentions of my mom. She did everything that she could, in my opinion. But it was chaotic. We moved a lot. We didn't have a lot of stability, and so the the bad part of that is, I do think that it could go away at any point. Um, the good part of that is that I don't take anything for granted. I also thrive in chaotic situations. Like I do my best when things are freaking out around me. I'm so centered in those moments. That's incredibly valuable in the industry you're in. Yeah. What What is your hope going forward? And what is your, is it hope or is it, this is going to be a reality? It's going to be a reality. It's also hope because it's an inevitable conclusion to me, but the how is what's uh, inspiring to me and exciting to me. And that is that we can look back in a few years. We've reached our 100 companies by 2020. I should say we're at 53 now. I don't know if we mentioned that earlier. We've invested in 53 companies. My goal is to be at 100 by 2020, underrepresented, no longer. 
that's the hope that that I backstage my place in the ecosystem is is no longer valid or need or needed because underrepresented does no no longer means uh, if you're black in tech, you're underrepresented. Just wanted to look like the real world. Why backstage capital, by the way? Why'd you call it backstage? Okay, totes. I, I try to take the credit for it, but my mom came up with it. Um, I was. It was used to be called Interlude Ventures because my magazine that I published years ago was called Interlude Magazine. The hot topic yeah, magazine. it was called Interlude, and I I love that name. It, it it was like one of my favorite things. So my name is Arlen, and I don't know a lot of Arlen, so I've always been big on branding and like names are important to me. So Interlude Ventures, but then I thought Interlude isn't bold enough for what I want to do. Like it doesn't have that. It makes it seem like it's fleeting. It's just a thing that you think about in between. It worked great for a music magazine because it was the artist's time where they get to talk and take a break from what they're doing and let us know about it. So anyway, I was in a car with my mom. Um, at, before we had our first investor, I was just um, in Pearland, Texas. We were um, living together, and I said, I'm looking for a different name for this fund that I'm figuring out. And she's, she didn't know what a venture fund was or anything. And I said, it, it can't be interlude. It needs to be something. I can't. And she said, well, what about like Arlen, Arlen Ventures or something? You know, I said, no. And then about three, four minutes later, she said, what about backstage? Because you work backstage with artists, and you help artists backstage, and you'll be helping with startups, right? And I'm like, my, my God, woman. <laughs> You're a genius. And it is true. Like, I, we try to do the same thing that I do when we work at, um, with artists is you do, there's a lot that goes on backstage. There's a lot of crew members that will never be, that are unsung heroes, right? But the important part is getting your headliner on stage, letting them shine because they, they, they ultimately pay the rent. They, they're the ones. And our headliners are, are, the, are the founders of the companies that we invest in. You like being the guy behind the guy behind the guy. Uh, let's take out the word guy, 3X, and yes. <laughs> let's let's start over. Um, the gal. We can even say chick. But let's say gal. I like being, you know, as and I, I know that my face is like in all these, uh, and like my, there's this picture that they use over and over again. <laughs> That's just me smiling. Um, but we try, really try to uh, put the companies at the forefront. You're a pretty good spokesperson, though. Here's what I'm doing. I'm grabbing the mic. I'm getting everybody's attention. And then when the spotlight's on me, I'd like to run away and let that spotlight stay on our founders. If we don't do that, I mean, we have to get the attention. We have to be bold. There are also a lot of things that I can say that I can afford to say that others can't because of one reason or the other. I don't have any um, – I don't feel like I am uh, beholden to any one person or any one entity and I'll speak my mind, and sometimes I'll be speaking on behalf of others, and I'm happy to do that. Arlen, thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having that me. That was awesome. Thank you so much. All right. Arlen Hamilton, Backstage Capital. Thank you very, very, very much for that. It was uh, truly inspirational. Uh, if you liked it, leave a comment on our Facebook page. You can find us under the Red Bull Podcast on Facebook. We are live now. Uh, special thanks to First Name James, First Name in Podcasting, who is our engineer. Our producer is T. Rizza from the shores of Nueva Jersey. We've got uh, Ryan the Turbo Thurban as well doing uh, associate producer credits and work. Also special thanks to TechCrunch uh, and the TechCrunch Disrupt Conference for bringing Arlen's story to our attention. And uh, I guess I will see you guys next time, next week even. All right, have a good one. 
Jesus. 